So how do you achieve financial freedom, gain wealth, and live life on your terms? That is the question, and here is the answer. I'm A.G. Osborne. Welcome to Cash Flow to Freedom. Welcome, everybody, to Cash Flow to Freedom. I am excited about today's guest because this is going to be something that's going to appeal to so many of you guys, and we're going... and really today is going to be a two-part um, uh, discussion we want to talk about. Uh, rental property management software, what's out there, what's important, things uh, like that. But really, what is going on in the market? Um, and the reason I think that this is the perfect guest to do this and what we're seeing per particularly in the single family housing market is because Lawrence, our guest today, he owns um, a software system that has over 200,000 landlords using this so that they can manage their properties. And this is used in a whole bunch of uh, different reasons, but this provides unique um, insight to what's going on in the market. And I'm really excited to dive into that. A uh, few things that we do want to talk about. We are going to be setting up um, more of these videos. We're putting them on YouTube. So you can go onto YouTube and check out our Cash Flow to Freedom channel as we get these things uploaded. Uh, I think uh, some of you may have remembered um, from our self-storage income podcast. Me and Connor are trying to do that and our camera failed halfway through. So we've just gotten somebody else that is a lot smarter than us to help help us out with that. That wasn't too hard to find. Um, uh, with that, I wanna jump straight into this so we can get down uh, down to talking about what's happening and what, uh, what we're seeing in the market as well as solutions that can be provided. With that, Lawrence, welcome. Hi, thanks for having me on, glad to be here. Thanks for coming on. Uh, you know, most of our guests we have on are the investors themselves. Not that you're not an investor, uh, but most of them, that's their primary function. Uh, thank you so much for coming on to talk about the other side in this because uh, people that listen to my podcast know that I'm just obsessive about policies, procedures, automation, and making sure that real estate investing is a business. Um, but two... From someone that has a unique uh, viewpoint into the single family housing market, rentals. Um, but before we jump in all that, why don't you tell us a little bit about your background? Um, I mean, you, uh, you're you an immigrant. So talk about your background, where you came from, because I, I love it. It's awesome, man. Sure. Probably a lot uh, to unpack. I'll try to do it quickly. I think first, you and I probably share the same passion for policies, procedures, automation, you know, coming out of... Um, school. That's actually the path I went down. Started at a risk and business consulting shop where it was five years of, you know, risks, policies, procedures, and data analytics. And um, so I spent a lot of my career just starting with that. Um, and then, you know, you mentioned um, I'm an immigrant, you know, prior to um, all of that came here with my family from South Africa. I think I was just a tad on the young side. So lost the accent. Um, probably the, the biggest asset that I wish I had kept Unfortunately, it's gone. Um, and then, you know, after consulting, uh, joined Goldman Sachs, did data anal analytics for them, um, primarily focused on hedge funds, alternative investments, those kinds of things. Uh, was fortunate enough to actually become a real estate investor as well. So uh, I am I am one. I've got six units that I manage here in Chicago. And, uh, you know, going through that process, being full-time uh, at Goldman and then part-time as a landlord, you know, I went out looking for software that would 
help me create those policies, procedures, and even more so the automation side of things and, and let me make my investment truly passive because I, I was led down the path thinking it was going to be passive and it wasn't. And so I wanted to return it back to something passive. And you know, when I looked for software, saw that there was nothing out there. Uh, so me and a buddy who shared the same experiences said, hey, you know what? There's nothing for do-it-yourself landlords who have six or fewer units. Let's go and create kind of all the tools and software that they need. So left Goldman, spent about a year and a half trying to find an engineer to build a program for us. We couldn't find one. So we uh, rolled up our sleeves, taught ourselves to code. Uh, I think I wrote the first 500,000 lines of our own app, um, all ge geared towards helping landlords automate their process. So um, that's what we've been doing now for eight years. As you mentioned, we've got 200,000 landlords using Avail, 400,000 tenants. So um, learned a lot about landlording in that time frame, and I'm happy to share a lot of that knowledge here. Yeah, that's that's cool stuff. I I, I love the idea that you just solve your problems, you build it out, you figure it out. Um, and that is just such a key attribute of entrepreneurs. And we've talked a lot about that on this podcast. Um, but why don't we go here and, you know, talk a little bit about you, you do have such a unique position to see um, what's going on and, and what you're hearing. Why don't you tell us a little about some key insights that you're hearing, seeing from landlords, tenants, um, and what's going on in the market right now? Yeah, well, we're fortunate enough to do, I think, two primary big things that give us the insights. So right now we help landlords find tenants. Um, they'll basically come and create a listing on our website and we push it out to everywhere in the world. And what that allows us to see is the volume and, and transactions that are happening for loose lease renewals, or for new leases and tenant turnover. Um, and we've seen through, you know, that we're obviously in the midst of the pandemic still. I think it's a long ways off um, before it ends. But we, we're seeing like the whole rental season, normally March to September, has completely shifted by two or three months. Uh, we started seeing a, a huge amount of tenants, more than the seven years that we'd been in business prior to this, renewing their leases. Um, when normally I think you would you know, you'd have the average tenancy be 18 months. We're seeing those pushed way up now. We're seeing a lot more tenants go month to month with their landlords um, as everyone's kind of fearful that they're either going to lose their job or that the economy is going to change even more. So they try to protect themselves in that way. So the whole moving season's basically been shifted. It'll be interesting to see if that sticks because normally you sign 12-month leases and it'll be interesting to see the impact long-term there. Um, and then the second thing is we actually collect rent through our system. So tenants will log in and make their rent payments um, and then we deposit directly to the landlord. So we, we've been seeing a lot of what's happening with rental data. And uh, ever since March, we've been following and tracking. Have landlords been receiving their rent? Have they not been receiving their rent? Um, it's been really interesting to watch. Um, at first, it started off with, you know, everyone's receiving their rent. Um, and, you, you know, we started thinking, okay, um, April 1st rents, that's going to be the big one. And then stimulus came out right then. And so we saw that rent payments were paid maybe just a little bit late uh, compared to the average. And then we're like, okay, well, May 1st is going to be the big one. Like that's when landlords aren't going to receive the rent, tenants are going to be able to pay. And we saw that additional stimulus came out with unemployment and the lines started um, coming down. And so um, unemployment was starting to finally reach the hands of people. And again, we saw that most landlords were receiving rent on time for May, June, and July because we had those stimulus packages out. And so then we were like, okay, September is going to be the big one where landlords aren't going to receive rent. Um, and what we're seeing is, again, landlords are still pre predominantly receiving rent. So we haven't seen kind of that huge drop in rent received that the media is trying to say that there is. Um, 
And I think a lot of it has been maybe there's been things that have kind of pushed it. So I think with September 1st, we just ha- we had seen a lot of tenants saving up. They knew that there was going to be problems and I think they were doing the, the right thing. Um, so now we're looking at October and we're thinking, you know what, <laughs> back to it. October might be the big one and we'll see what happens in the meantime. Hmm. That's interesting. So what what is the percentage of uh, delinquents? Is that at all changed or is it just been minimal or? Yeah, it really depends what you're defining as delinquent. So whether that's paid late or just not paid at all. Not um, paid at all. Seeing, Let's do that. Okay. Okay, perfect. Well, the not pay, the paid late has definitely increased. The not uh-huh. paid at all, um, you know, we would historically see uh, across the entire United States somewhere in the 90s, low 90s, for just paid in full um, within 30 days. And now we're seeing it have come down to around 87, 88%, um, which is actually a still a pretty big amount, but not anywhere near what the media was suggesting would happen. And then that's been kind of a slow decrease ever since March. Yeah. So I I think this is important because you hear narratives also that these people are racking up bills. So all these people aren't paying and they're racking up bills and then there's going to be a mass default. So I was at a conference just this week and there was a gentleman talking about that saying, oh, well, there's all these people that aren't paying right now. And this is a tally that's growing, but yet um, rental property managers aren't counting it, right? They're keeping it on the balance sheet as uh, um, collectibles, uh, but that because that's going so far that that rent is just stacking up and it will never be paid back. But you're saying you're seeing actually that people are paying. They're actually getting the money in. Yeah, as an average, they're paying. Um, yes. Obviously, there's certainly yeah, some absolutely. landlords and private managers who aren't receiving rent. Yeah. Um, and I think when when you try to dig into the data more and maybe you try to break it out by um, geography or even within cities, you like this. Unfortunately, there's going to be areas of a city that are more prosperous than others. And when you break it down that way, you can you can clearly see areas that are more impacted than others. Um, we've actually been working with several housing authorities in some cities as well directly to try help them with that data and see where there are pockets within their city that aren't doing well so they can try to make some policy change. Because there are some areas where it's not 87%, it's way further down. Um, and then there are some areas where it hasn't changed at all. So th- there are going to be huge nuances and um, it's tough to look at averages. So there are some people who are impacted. And, um, so classes I, you know, policy- of real estate matters a lot. So Absolutely. you're 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 saying less defaults in, um, you know, a a, uh, a class apartments or homes versus, you know, maybe D or C um, uh, type housing. Am I correct? Yeah, which which isn't um, unexpected. I, I, yeah, I call it unfortunate exactly. for sure, but, but not, unexpected. not unexpected. That's mm-hmm. that's the reason they're lower class properties. It's because that's happens. Um, that is so interesting. Now, what about your side? So are you seeing more people utilize the app? Are you seeing investors buy more, slow down? What about the, you know, that's the rental side. What about the investor side? Yeah, absolutely. So certainly there's been a slowdown in purchases. So we're not seeing like the average number of units on our system go up as much, um, which over time we would normally see people add more properties as they get their feet wet and they get comfortable with it. We're seeing a lot more conservative approach to buying. Um, However, we are seeing a lot more customers in general coming on board. Um, there's a series of things about taking your whole process online 
that just feel safer in a pandemic. So you don't want to have to receive a check with your rent that's been licked closed anymore. Um, you don't want to have to do a showing in person or do the maintenance in person. So if you can move it all online um, and almost in a way go contactless, yes. uh, it's a lot safer. And we're seeing a huge push both from landlords and tenants to try to figure out a contactless process. Yeah. And this comes into, as we were discussing before we jumped on here, the automation part. And um, this is something that you know has been very important to me, my company, um, in our real estate journey, um, is automating the system that of renters to access, to utilize our assets, make payments, um, those different things. Tell me about what you're seeing in the rental market on automation um, and how this helps and what these different property management so- uh, uh, softwares do for the landlords. Yeah, this is another one where um, just like rental properties, there's probably some sort of a class warfare happening between small individual landlords and property managers. Uh, property managers have always used technology, mm-hmm. um, especially the larger you get. You have no choice. You yeah. um, you need it and you can afford it. You know, If that's your main business, um, you're going to go and get something even if it's $1,000 a month or $10,000 a month. And software has always existed for those people. Um, and then for individual landlords, you've got one or two units. Software has previously never existed for you. It's really been hard to automate things. And um, that's been a huge challenge because you, you're just not going to progress. You're never going to view your business as a business um, in that way. And so that's partly why what we set out to accomplish was um, bringing those same tools to individual landlords. And so what we've seen historically and what we're still seeing today is most landlords with one unit tend to use Excel for everything. That's their bookkeeping. That's their rent roll. That's how they keep track of if the tenant's paid or not. Um, it's maybe how they keep track of a pipeline of people are showing apartments to that in their email. And then they'll just use their email as kind of their to-do list. And um, that's going to get really tough or is tough for them. And that's where mistakes happen and problems occur and you miss out on good tenants. Um, And a lot of those landlords don't do tenant screening. They don't know that they can or should or have access to those things. And so you get an escalation of mounting problems when you're tracking things in email and Excel, and then you didn't screen your tenants and all of a sudden, you don't know if you're being paid or not anymore, especially now with the pandemic. Um, yes. It's, it, you, now you can see like the, your lack of effort in auto, that automation is probably coming back to you. So for me, it's always, like, it's always been a, a huge thing that everyone should do. They should automate. They should use the right, even if it's not automated, at least use the right process. You know, follow some stand, gold standard that's not that hard to figure out. Um, it's, at least you have to hear about it the first time. Um, and that's part of our mission. No, no. Walk me through this here. Um, when tell me about screening tenants. Um, it, you know, how does that work, and how is that done, and how can you do it effectively? Because this is a really important thing, and getting more important as people are looking for it, the laws that have changed in so much of the country are. St- they are not landlord friendly anymore. I mean, if you're in California or Washington, I can't tell you how many people I've talked to and they're like, we're getting out of being landlords because it's just not even plausible anymore. Um, and so they're the ones that are saying, we want to grow this business. I want to stick it out. Um, we need though to step it up and who we allow and how we do it. Talk to me about that. How do you, how do you do that? And how do you automate that? And what does, you know, what do some of these property management systems allow you to do? 
Yeah, absolutely. Well, I think it even starts earlier than the screening. It starts with finding the tenants because where you find them can have a huge impact on the quality of those tenants and changes how you screen them. What do you mean by where you find them? So like if you placed a, like, okay, you go back 20 years, landlords would find a tenant by putting a yard sign out front. And anybody who passed by the that place might call you and say, I want to see it. And that really limits your potential of who you're going to have in the place. And um, you're always nervous because you don't get that many leads, right? It's a yeah. very isolated, localized. And when you don't get that many leads, you're going to end up erring on the side of taking the first tenant you see because you're fearful. So if you change how you find tenants, you can remove the fear from it and it puts you in a much better position. So, you know, you want to evolve away from yard signs or away from the single source of tenants. So another single source that's taken over yard signs is maybe Craigslist. So now if you ask most landlords, how do you find tenants? It's Craigslist. And again, you have the same problem. It's a single source, a single place. You get some leads, but most of them are really low quality. So when you get a good one, you're fearful that you're going to lose your good lead. And you feel like you just have to take them. And that's not a good position for you to be in. So you want to diversify where you're getting tenants and ultimately makes you better off when you come to the screening path. Because then you'll, you'll take your time and you'll realize, hey, it's not the end of the world if I don't get this one tenant. Um, and so it starts with that. So you want to take a listing and you want to put it on tons of websites. So Zillow, Trulia, Hotpads, Apartments.com, Lovely, you know, all of the places essentially. Broaden your horizons there. The problem with that is it obviously is cumbersome and time consuming. Um, I don't want to plug our app, but obviously you want to find something that allows you to automate that syndication. We do that, but there's a bunch of other companies who do that as well. Um, And that makes the process so much easier. And then you can see how many leads you're getting and you're not fearful. That's number one, I think, is to um, see all those leads um, because then you'll, you'll take your time. And then as far as the real screening goes, you know, I think of it in terms of three things. Um, You want to see how a renter has treated other creditors in the past. So I tend to think of myself as a, now a creditor. I'm extending a 12-month, um, I'm giving them a product for 12 months and having them pay me over 12 months as opposed to upfront. So I'm taking a bit of a credit risk. So yeah. I want to see how they've treated other creditors in the past. Do they pay on time? Do they not pay on time? And that's generally a credit report. So if you can get access to a credit report, that's going to give you a sense of that. Um, and then I want to see how they've maybe treated the community. So the first one is creditors. The second one being community. What have they done in the community before? You know. I'd, do they do violent crimes? Have they been committed to violent crimes? Um, anything like that? Are they on uh, the OFAC list, you know, to, like the terrorist watch list? Um, you know, you want to have a sense for that because your community is based on those things. And certainly there's going to be some crimes that you're going to be like, I don't mind. Uh, and then there are some that you do mind. And you also should take into account where your properties are located. Um and try to build up that community a little bit. You want to see how they've treated the community. Obviously, something that occurred 10, 20, 30 years ago, probably not as relevant as something that occurred two years ago. Um, and then the third one I like to look at is how do they treat landlords? So creditors, community, and then prior landlords. Um, and there's two ways to do that. One is to call prior landlords. Um, I recommend doing that. You want to automate that. We call prior landlords on your behalf. Um, hmm. So we make that easy. And then you want to look at eviction reports. Because that'll be like the extreme of a negative landlord tenant situation. So um, you could try to make some hard rules on some of those around the credit report, the criminal background, and the eviction check, and just kind of create your checklist and say, this is what I'm willing to accept and what I'm not willing to accept. Um, and those three reports are pretty important. Um, in conjunction with those, you, you want to ask the tenant some questions that can usually be in the form of a questionnaire, or you can do it over the phone. But you want to ask them, like, where have they lived in the past? Where are they employed? Um, how much money do you make? 
um, you, you're, you have a right to some of that information so you can make an assessment as to their, their work, the credit worthiness and all those other things, the property. So figuring all of that stuff out is hugely important and you're way more likely to do those if you see that you have a pipeline of leads um, coming in. So I think those two things go hand in hand. No, that's awesome. You know, I want to kind of take a little step back here and I want to, you know, yeah, you are an investor, but I want to talk about your software system because it, it, you know you're an entrepreneur. You you fear this out. You develop. Walk me through more of that journey. I'm really curious about how you went from being an investor to say, hey, we've got this idea, Bill. How did you fund it? Did you have partners? How did you uh, think of the ideas and hey, how long has it been? All that kind of stuff. I, I'm really intrigued on what you built. I mean, you're talking, you know, 200,000 landlords that are currently using it. That's amazing. And um, it's, you know, does some pretty amazing things. So walk me through that, that, that journey. Well, first appreciate uh, all that, you know, um, I think there's a tendency to think of entrepreneur, entrepreneurialism as something that's glamorous and um, sexy. And honestly, now I think about the past eight years, uh, it was hard work. Um, like there's a lot of painful memories and, um, avenues we went down that were like, you look back and be like, Oh God, why did, why did we do that? And why did it not work out that way? And, um, and I think our success has been mostly a factor of just not giving up. Maybe we should have, maybe we shouldn't have, but we didn't. And now we've got some success. So, um, you know, if, if there are aspiring entrepreneurs on the call, um, who are listening and they're thinking they want to start something, the, the biggest thing that they just need to realize is how much persistence it's going to take. Um, that's number one, because you should expect to fail over and over and over and over again. And you hope that each time you did, you'll learn something. Um, and, and I don't mean like do a startup, fail at that one, then try a different one. I mean, stick with that startup, fail at a test within that startup, change something and keep going with it. Because otherwise, if you just keep abandoning each startup, you're never going to grow either. So for us, it's been a journey of persistence, I would say. When we started, um, like it was my friend Ryan and I, uh, we had both been real estate investors and friends for a long time. When we were started, I'd say we were more fortunate than most because, you know, we were both working at investment banks. We had been able to save up some money um, to at least start a business and not take a salary for a year and feed ourselves for a year. Um, and not worry about that. Now, we only had really a year of that. So we're not as fortunate as others, but considerably more fortunate than most. Um, now, you don't need that, but we had that. And after that first year, we were still trying to figure out how to code. So um, we had kind of run out. And then we we had some uh, minimal product that we said, okay, let's just, we've run out of money now. Let's push this out and see if people are liking it. And we had about 100 landlords come on and use it that we just cold called from friends and family, um, some warm leads, I guess. And uh, they started using it like, this is really cool. We love it. Um, I don't like it as it is, but there's potential. And so we use that to, you know, um, raise a small round of funding from angel investors um, because we had something, we had some market testing on it. People said they would use it if it had X, Y, Z. So we went out, raised a small amount of money around $600,000. Uh, so depending on where you live and what you do, that that's either a lot or a little. In in a startup world, that's very small amount for an initial round. Um, and we used it to essentially kind of build what those hundred landlords said it would take for them to start paying. And uh, we spent eighteen months rebuilding, um, and then we went back to market, got around two thousand landlords on uh, who were willing to pay us, and um, 
started going from there. From from that point, we had kind of proved that landlords wanted software, um, needed it, and so we went back to the you know back to fundraising, raised a two million dollar round from a local venture capitalist, and started growing from there. And now we've gone back several times and, and raised several rounds of two million dollars. So, and how um, many employees the, the big, do you have? To, to now we have I'd say twenty eight full time employees and another fifteen. 28 US-based full-time employees, and then probably another 12 or 14, either part-time or full-time offshore. That's awesome. That's amazing. And it's been eight years. Yeah, it feels like 50. (laughs) (laughs) That is the entrepreneurship journey. (laughs) Yeah, pretty much. When was the, how long before you took your first round from uh, from a true venture capitalist? Uh, eight, about 18 months since we took our first round. Oh, wow. Um, and, oh, sorry. No, like I'm thinking of the, uh, the angel round. So the angel round was about 18 months. Okay. It was about three years, honestly, before we took in, an institutional round. Okay. And when, when, how long did you go before you started hiring people? Uh, we hired people along just before that round. So uh, 2015, we hired our first couple employees and they're actually still with us today. So awesome. um, we've actually been fortunate enough to have really good uh, longevity with our employees. We, we try to treat them really well. They're one of our primary stakeholders. So um, and, and that's probably another piece of advice. Like if you're building a business, um, it's only as good as the knowledge base you're building along with it. And when employees leave, they take the knowledge with them. So, yep. yeah. No, that's awesome. I, I couldn't agree with that more. I, um, I hate turnover and turnover kills businesses and just not from the work and everything. It, it is that knowledge turnover and mm-hmm. uh, those special skills. It, it, it takes quite a while for employees to be efficient. Right. So it's not months. It's, you know, <laughs> it's a year yeah. or two years till they're really in their groove and really doing things. So it's important to um, build a good culture around having employees and, when you're going through, right when you started out, you didn't know if it was going to be successful. You're doing these tests. Uh, did you ever think that you're like, this was going to be a fun experiment, but um, this may not, you know, we may end this here soon? Oh, yeah, every day for sure. Um, and, you know, that was probably even worse after we took um, like that angel round because that angel round included people we knew as like friends and family. Yes. And uh, your whole mindset switches as soon as you take other people's money and you know them because you want to be so careful with it. when it was my money. Sure. I'd spend it up. I'd, I'd spend a hundred dollars on AdWords and hopefully get one customer and be like, that was awesome. Um, that's not good enough when it's like someone else's money that I know. Um, most people think it's the opposite. Like you got other people's money, spend, 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 but it actually for us was um, we ended up becoming a lot more uh, careful with how we spend money as soon as we took that. And um and I think fortunately today, right, because we, we've created a mindset and a culture where unit economics matter. Um, and that's allowed us to really kind of persevere through the pandemic where a lot of other small businesses are struggling and going under. And we've been um, still growing and we're even hiring in this time frame. Uh, we're, we're trying to add eight more people to the team. So I think a lot of that just came down to how careful we were with our money. Awesome. Yeah, that's uh you know, cash is king when you're a startup it, mm-hmm. and it, it, every penny matters. Um, and you're, I, I love that example too. You get when you take on somebody's 
uh, other people's money, you know, you have to be more careful. You know, when we were through our real estate and our startups that we did, we never took on other people's capital um, for that reason. Like you said, I could spend a hundred dollars and make one. I'm like, great, then whatever. But I knew that would change, and and we changed that. We started up a more of a private equity division to investments, and that's exactly right. Everything became way more important, mm-hmm. and you worried about things a lot more because that risk is now not your own. Um, and w- how long did it take you to become profitable? Yeah, well, so profit's an interesting thing because you we, you could argue today that we're not profitable still. Mm-hmm. So um, obviously profit is revenue minus expenses, but we, we look at it as like, okay, how much does it cost us to get a landlord yeah. using us and, and their tenants? Um, and then how much money do we make? And on those unit economics, we're extremely profitable. Um, we do really well. But then we also always are investing in research and development. Yep. So we're constantly trying to add new features. So one feature we're trying to add now is expense tracking and accounting. We're trying to automate the process of flowing through to your taxes. Um, and so those features don't make money yet. Yeah, so, they just um, are they cost, expenses. Yeah, they're just expenses. So if you consider like research and development, um, then we're not profitable yet. And then that's where we rely on for new feature development. Um, we rely on investor capital, and that's why we raise. Um, oh. We raise to keep building and keep growing. Um, but at any time, uh, I think we're fortunate where we we can be profitable. We don't have to spend on that research and development. Um, like we're exceedingly profitable if we stick to our core business. But then you're going to die too. So you you always have to grow. We it, it, I tell my partners all the time. We want to start making more money. Stop growing. Um, it's a really simple thing, but, um, I, you know, that's a quick way for businesses to die. And, um, we realize if you're not growing, you are dying, but it also means though, if times get tough or whatnot, we can, we can put the brakes on the growth and we're fine. Right. And you can make money and you can sit back and work on maybe being more effective in those operations. Um, but it's important to uh, be adapting, growing, adding on services and, uh, you know, that stuff is really expensive. Um, even- yeah, we actually looked at we actually look at profitability sometimes as a negative because yeah. for us, in when the pandemic was coming out, we we cut back on some of the uh, like the, the R and D, some of the marketing expenses that we don't need right now. Um, and then yeah, we were accidentally profitable in April, May, June, and so forth um, because you know things didn't go as south. They didn't go south like we thought they might. Um, and then we cut back the expenses, so we were profitable then. But now we're we're dialing back up, going back on the growth path. Now that we've seen a little bit more of what the pandemic is doing and what kind of legs it has, so no. It, yeah. And and two, you know, you talk about growth, and you're you you talk about when you're going to get your heyday or your payday, and it, it's interesting because. Um, when we look at ours, even once we gre- developed a great model and we developed. Um, how we wanted it to be run and uh, we were making profit, everything else. We thought, okay, there's a whole new level that we can obtain now. So let's go after it. Let's try to get it. And then you start up on either a division. So we had our private equity division, right? Well, we will dump money into that and not make money for a long time. And then you got to think about getting your return on your money. Um, So, it really is something I think people forget about. They think, oh, I just start my business, then it becomes profitable and we grow. And it's like, well, that's it's not that 
simple. And to, I guess you're right. It depends on how fast you want to grow. It's more important for us to look at other metrics. And it's interesting. It'd be interesting for me to say, okay, obviously, if you're saying, listen, we're allocating resources to grow, what are the metrics that you're looking at as an entrepreneur to decide if those dollars are being used wisely, to be decide if this is the correct path that you're going on? What metrics are you looking at? Because I'm sure a lot of people are like, well, if you're not making money, how do you know if you're doing good? Yeah, I, I a great question. You know, um, I'll start with just in general for real estate investors, like because um, I think there's a commonality. Um, one one metric that's super important is cash flow. Like at the end of the month, did cash come in or not come in? Because you can look at all, all of the other things too, like IRR or you know um, ROI or whatever it is. But if if there isn't actual cash coming in at the end of the month, then you're you're gonna die. Like you need that cash, and that's pretty important for. Avail as a business as well. We're constantly looking at what cash is coming in and out. Um, and because we process rent payments for landlords, um, separate than obviously our business, uh, we're constantly looking at cash coming in and out on behalf of all of our landlords because we, we're constantly, that's important yes. to our business is, is seeing what's happening with them. So cash flow, super important. It's what allows you to grow. It's what allows you to survive. Um, hugely important. Um, for us, a couple other things that we look at um, a lot are uh, customer retention rates. So when a customer uh, signs up with us and they're starting to either collect rent with us or whatever it is, um, do they come back and do it again next month? And do they collect another month's rent with us? And to us, that's probably, as far as the product goes, probably the most important metric. We, we really want to make sure that they're continuing to receive value from our product every single month. And when they don't, um, at a, at a holistic level, we look to see what's broken. And then even at each individual, we'll reach out to those customers and, and be like, hey, what's happening here? Um, so super important. Um, we uh, we have a whole bunch of other metrics that we look at too. So like activation rate and time to activate. So if someone signed up, how it's all our entire product is self-service. So we look at how quickly does it take for them to do the thing that they signed up to do. So if it was to come on and create a listing, you know, they should be able to do that within five to six minutes. And so we look at, okay, are they doing it in five to six minutes? What's the trend of that over time? Um, and where people come, well, outside of that six minutes, we have a whole bunch of automated processes that try to put them back in the right path, try to get some quick wins. So those are, are pretty important. Obviously, revenue is important for us. We constantly try to get revenue to grow. In um, the venture capital world, there's some funny venture capital math around revenue. Um, even if you're not profitable, if you you can push your revenue up. That's going to make your total business go up, even at the expensive profit. Um, and so sometimes, you know, companies are almost mandated to push revenue up, even at a huge sacrifice in economics. And we've been pushed to do that too in the past. And we always say no. Um, we're we're tightly focused on union economics, so we we violate VC math sometimes, um, uh, for better or worse. Uh, I think it puts us in a better position, and our customers are in a better position. Um, so there's a, there's a gambit of yeah. metrics. We what is at. your average retention when you're looking at that? What is the life cycle of customers? Yeah, it's um, it's high, not as high as we always wanted to be. Like every time we're trying to push it higher. Right now, it's around eighty eight percent. That's awesome. Uh, it's amazing. Month over month, yeah. Yeah, yeah, which, yeah, yeah. Which for software as a service, really, really good retention. But yes, um, in our opinion, there should be no one who's leaving unless they sell the property. Yes. 
Yeah, no, I agree. That's a yeah, that's that perfection thing. You you want to get it to where it's exactly you know how you should be because that shows you where you can improve and what you can do. Well, let me yeah. ask you this before we wrap up here. What, tell me about where you're like what your vision is for your company, and now that you're at this level, where you guys want to go, and how are you going to get your company to that next level? Yeah, uh, well, we've. So we started off, uh, well, the vision hasn't changed, but we, we, to execute on it, we started off on, we need to provide tools and software to landlords uh, to automate the process, make it easier for them, try to get them back to passive income, because I think they came into it thinking it was going to be passive and then it didn't end up being. So that, that for us is kind of phase one, get us, get them those tools. Phase two for us was trying to then uh, bring that same level of automation and maybe even more so transparency to the tenant side of it. Um, because for us, it's not just about the landlord. The the tenants are part of that rental experience as well. They're the ones making the rent payments. Um, there's a bunch of things landlords can do better to be more responsible. There's a bunch of things tenants can do to be more responsible. And we think bringing transparency is going to help both sides get there. Um, I hate going to Google and doing a search for like landlords are, and you'll see an autocomplete with scumbags or greedy. And yeah. you do the same thing with tenants are and lazy or whatever it is. I hate seeing that. So a really good outcome for us for phase one would be you do a Google search and it's replaced by something else. Like tenants are trustworthy and landlords are responsible. That's an ambitious phase one. Um, Long term, like we really think there's a way for us to help um, communities, governments, uh, policymakers, because we've got so much rent payment data. We can see which areas of the country are paying rent, which aren't. We We can see that by... Um, socioeconomic status by racial areas. And we can see where people are struggling more than others. And for us, we think we can provide that data to, um, you know, agencies and government to to influence policy. Like we're not the policymakers, but they need the data. Nobody has that data on do-it-yourself landlords. It's such a fragmented market that nobody has it. Um, so we think we can provide that, maybe let them make those policy changes and then follow the data to see and confirm if their policy changes were correct. That's our, our super long-term vision is to really build build that out and, and influence a lot of that change in the rental market. It's awesome. Become a leader in the space. Mm-hmm. That's great. Well, thank you so much, first of all, for coming on. This is a unique podcast because we're talking two different things, but at the same time, you're talking capital management, you're talking, right, entrepreneurship, startup, and and following your ideas and building it up. And I really appreciate that. Um, I think that's helpful for so many people. Your investing journey obviously took you down a road you didn't expect. Um, and I think it's awesome where you ended up. So why don't you tell, uh, where can people find you, get a hold of you, learn more about you? Sure. Uh, well, they can learn more about Avail at on our website, um, avail.co. So it's not a .com, you know, one of those tough choices you have to make when you can't afford uh, the domain. So avail.co. Um, and I'm happy to chat with people individually. I love it when people reach out to me, um, discuss their stories, discuss mine. So they can email me directly at lawrence at avail.co. So L-A-U-R-E-N-C-E at avail.co. Happy to chat with anybody. Awesome. Hey, thank you so much. And we'll put those in the show notes. And uh, man, I wish you nothing but the best of luck. Excited to where you're going. It's awesome how many landlords you're, you're helping out. And thanks for coming on. Great. Thank you so much for having me. Have a good one. Thanks, everyone, for listening to this episode of Cashflow to Freedom. Be sure to subscribe to us for more and feel free to check us out at cashflow with the number 2freedom.com or find us on Instagram and Facebook. 
And also, if you could leave us a good review, that would really help us continue to build out our content and our community. Thank you so much.